All right, well, beautiful scene. So I've not met you. I'm Aaron, and uh, the preaching pastor here. We're glad that you're with us uh, today. So if you have a Bible with you, if you'd open up to the book of Jonah. Today, our text of study will come from Jonah chapter 4. Jonah chapter 4. So this time here, I'm going to read uh, the entire sacred text, and then I'm going to pray, ask for the Lord's blessing, and then we will uh, work through this passage uh, verse by verse. So Jonah 4. This is what the word says. But it it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and bounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out to the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become the city. Now the Lord appointed a plant and made it cover up Jonah, that there might be a shade over his head to save him from discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant, so it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? He said, Yes. I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. The Lord said, You pity the plant, for which did not labor, nor did you make to grow, which came to being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the right hand from their left, and also much cattle? That's God's word for us this morning. Let's pray. Lord, it's good to be here this morning. And Lord, I do pray that you would bless the preaching of your word. Please give us ears to hear. Please help us to not be distracted by whatever cares that we may have walked in here with. Lord, please help me to be a good communicator. Help me to rightly divide the word of truth. And God, we do ask that through the power of your spirit, you would do a work in this time. Glory, glory, Jesus. So his name we pray. Amen. Okay, so before we jump into our text of study this morning, let me share with you one of the parables of Jesus that I've actually been thinking about a lot in our short little study of Jonah. So this comes from the Gospel of Matthew, the 18th chapter. And I'm just going to read this for us here and explain why I kept coming back to this passage in my own mind and heart uh, throughout uh, Jonah. So it says this, Therefore the kingdom of heaven will, uh, may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants, when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Tremendous amount. And since he could not pay it, his master ordered him to be sold, and his wife and his children, and all that he had, and payment made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And I will pity for him. The master of the servant released him and forgave him his debt. When the same servant went out and found that one of his fellow servants, who owed him 100 denarii, a small amount, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So this fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused. 
and he went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw that it had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to the master all that had taken place. Then the master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant, who I just had mercy on you? In his anger, the master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all of his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to you everyone to every one of you, if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now, there's some clear differences between Jonah and the parable I just read you, particularly when it comes to the theme of like forgiving others uh, that the parable is driving us towards. But I think the reason why I just kept thinking about this parable over and over again was because of the attitude of the master's servant, who is a man who received so much mercy, kindness, and grace from his master, yet had no such mercy, kindness, and grace towards others. And I think I've been thinking about this over and over again because this has actually been one of the more convicting areas or aspects of the book of Jonah, particularly when you get to the final chapter of this little book today. So now just as a little bit of review on Jonah, just help to set the context of our passage. Let me remind you, it's all different places where Jonah was on the receiving end of such mercy, kindness, and grace from God. Okay, so let's even start even before Jonah. Jonah was part of Israel, the Old Testament covenantal people of God, who were entrusted with the Old Testament scriptures which no doubt Jonah had been acquainted with from young on. Right? That's an incredible grace in his life, to grow up around the things of God. As we learned in the first sermon in the short sermon series, Jonah also was a prophet of God, which made him even more acquainted with the sacred text. And not only that, in the Old Testament time, it appears to be some type of like school of prophets, where younger prophets would have been mentored by more seasoned prophets. And it seems likely that that would have been the case for Jonah, to grow up as a young prophet in that type of setting. Which can you imagine the type of community and fellowship that would have had been part of the school of prophets? I mean, what, what an incredible mercy and grace and kindness of God on Jonah. In 2 Kings, we learned how Jonah was used by the Lord in a pretty incredible way to care for the people of Israel. As you can imagine how encouraging that had to be for Jonah. I mean, he probably would have been like a real hero throughout the entire nation. Right? What another mercy, kindness, grace of God upon him. Then we get to this little book of Jonah, Jonah 1. God came to his prophet and told him to go to the great city of Nineveh to preach. Now, this great city of Nineveh is great in terms of its size, population, influence, but also great in its evil deeds. And this preaching assignment given to him, this is another mercy, kindness, grace of God on Jonah. One where Jonah should have rejoiced to be counted worthy by the Lord for this incredible assignment. However, as we know, as we learn in our study, as Jonah got this assignment, he actually rejected God's clear command. And he headed in the opposite of Nineveh to Tarshish by way of the sea which he did because he didn't want any type of mercy or kindness or grace from the Lord to come upon this great city. Rather, Jonah, he had such disdain for Nineveh, he just wanted judgment to fall on them. Which for me, as this opening scene in Jonah starts to unfold, this is where mine already started to like, think about this parable I just read for you just moments back. A great opportunity given to Jonah to be a minister of grace, to be used by the Lord to show mercy and kindness to a great city, you know, the very things that Jonah himself was on the receiving end so much of his life. Yet, as we know, Jonah wanted nothing to do with that type of ministry. So he fled. And he went to the opposite direction of Nineveh. And he tried to get to Tarshish by way of the sea. However, as Jonah was fleeing, as you remember, the Lord began chasing. And the Lord chased Jonah by hurling a great storm on the sea, which, by the way, was also another grace in his life. It was a grace, it was a kindness, it was a mercy of God to chase Jonah. Is evidence of God's love 
for Jonah that he came to him as a great hound of heaven to discipline Jonah with the intentions of bringing Jonah back to him. And as the Lord chased Jonah on the sea, you may remember, it led to Jonah being thrown into the sea, where the Lord graciously appointed a giant fish to come swallow Jonah up, which where Jonah's body would lay for the next three days. So that's all just in chapter 1. Then in chapter 2, as Jonah's being swallowed up by the great fish, remember how Jonah repented of his sin, returned back to the Lord to find forgiveness in life. And as Jonah repented in chapter 2, the Lord graciously heard his prayer. The Lord had great mercy on Jonah. So after being in the belly of fish for three days, the Lord appointed the great fish to spit Jonah back out onto dry land. And as Jonah's put on dry land in chapter 3, which was our text last week, there's almost like a redo in the book for Jonah, another act of mercy and grace and kindness to him. And as the Lord gave Jonah a second chance, this time the Lord, uh, Jonah actually followed through. So after the Lord came to Jonah, gave him the same command that he did in chapter 1, this time, rather than running from God's clear command, in our text last week, Jonah actually obeyed. And he went to Nineveh and he preached. In our text last week, Jonah preached and God moved in an incredible way where indeed he did show mercy and grace and kindness to Nineveh as a city-wide revival just basically took place, where God worked in the hearts from the greatest to the least of Nineveh, including even the heart of the king himself, where all throughout the great city of Nineveh, people were believing in God, which we think would have been an incredible encouragement to Jonah. I mean, what a mercy, what a kindness, what a grace to be used by the Lord in that way to preach a great revival. However, as we close our text today, we see that as the Lord is doing this great work, this great act of compassion on Nineveh, we actually see this becomes a source of frustration for Jonah. Jonah had that much disdain in his heart towards the Ninevites. Sure, Jonah was happy to receive mercy, grace, and kindness, but like the servant in the parable I read for you, Jonah didn't want that same type of mercy, kindness, and grace extended to others, which is such a warning for us. And to go back to what has been said throughout our short sermon series, this is a warning that we must hear, especially as our own society continues to find new ways to thumb its nose at the Lord and his word, which will tempt us to hold our society like Jonah with contempt and disdain, where we actually don't want the Lord to show mercy, kindness, and grace to those around us even though we ourselves have received so much of it. So, with that as an introduction, look back with me, starting at verse 1. As I mentioned, I'm just going to walk through verse by verse. Verse 1, read the words, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Now that it, you see that it in verse 1, that it that Jonah was exceedingly displeased by, that it felt so wrong to him, this refers to the work of God of bringing Nineveh into the saving belief in him. It really bothered Jonah that the Lord would do that. He was exceedingly displeased. He was angry. He was frustrated that God would show such mercy and kindness and grace to this great city. In verse 1, in Jonah's heart, there's murmuring, complaining, bickering towards the Lord. And not just in like low levels of frustration, maybe a like small burn. Around in verse 1, this presents Jonah as being like hot, with anger towards the Lord. There's like an inferno raging in his heart. He's like overflowing with passion and how wrong this all felt to him. Verse 2. So in his anger, we see that Jonah prayed to the Lord. 
But this prayer, this doesn't feel like one where like in his frustration, Jonah's like going to the Lord to try to get some help, try to get some understanding, you know, perhaps praying to the Lord to help him in his unbelief. Rather, this prayer in this text, this feels like the Lord coming to, or Jonah coming to the Lord so he could put his finger of accusation in God's face. In our text. Oh Lord, is this not exactly what I said would happen when I was still back in my country in Israel? I, I just knew you were going to do this. I knew that you were going to show mercy and compassion on those evil Ninevites. God, why would you do this? If you actually knew what you were doing, if you actually were running the world properly, you would have brought judgment on them. But no. Clearly, you screwed this up. And you saved them from judgment. After all, this is why I made with such haste to try to get to Tarshish. Lord, I knew it. I just knew it. I knew you would screw this up in our text. For I know that you're a God who is gracious and merciful. You're a God who's slow to anger. You're a God who's abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. So I knew it. I just knew it. Lord, I knew you'd make this unwise decision and you'd pour out your grace and your mercy and treat the evil Ninevites with such kindness. Lord, clearly I was right. I was right in chapter 1 to try to flee your presence. I was right. I knew you would do wrong here. Because that clearly I can't trust you. Therefore, verse 3, please just take my life from me. I can't handle this anymore. How you are running things is just so far gone. For me, I have to see you pour out mercy and kindness and grace on like the Ninevites? That's just too much for me. I can't handle it. It would be better for me to die than to continue to live through this. I mean, talk about bitter, murmuring, complaining, bickering heart. That's Jonah. And he's proven that the bitterness that he had was not necessarily not just against Nineveh, but he's like bitter towards the Lord. So again, this is the prophet putting his finger in God's face with such anger. He's making incredibly harsh accusations towards God, even accusing the Lord of doing wrong. By the way, verse 3, Jonah praying for his life to be taken. I do think we need to see this as standing in contrast to the words of his previous prayer in chapter 2. Remember when he was walking in repentance of faith in the belly of the, the great fish, how he sought the Lord to find life, but now, in a sense, he's seeking the Lord to actually find death. Almost kind of brings things back full circle to chapter 1 for Jonah. As he's trying to flee the presence of the Lord. So once again, now here, Jonah in this passage is wanting to flee from the presence of the Lord. And he'd rather just go to the grave. Verse 4. With the prophet's finger in God's face, we see the Lord now respond back to him. Graciously. As the Lord says to Jonah, do you do well to be angry? Is this really how you want to act right now, Jonah? Do you really think you're doing well in this prayer? I mean, think about it. God clearly could have just wiped Jonah off the face of the earth here. That would have been no problem for the Lord to do. And he would have been just in doing so. In our text, the Lord didn't do that. Instead, he chose to give the prophet a soft 
question that really should have been used by Jonah to turn away from his anger. Jonah, do you do well to be angry? Jonah, is this really what you want? Do you really understand what you're saying? Jonah, can't you see the disdain in your heart? Has you so twisted around? And this question from the Lord back to his prophet, this is the Lord being very gracious to him. However, verse 5, even the Lord once again is gracious to Jonah, even though God's soft answer should have softened Jonah's hard heart. We see that Jonah finished his prayer. We see that it did nothing to him. You see, he headed out of the city of Nineveh to go east of the city where he could set up a tent or like a booth for himself. But he would just like sit in misery to further see what might happen to the city, which I am sure for Jonah, he's hoping that the tongue lashing that he just gave to the Lord in the prayer, that that tongue lashing would maybe like wake God up from being so kind and so gracious and so merciful. And perhaps maybe then God would finally rain fire from heaven on Nineveh. You know, for sitting outside the city, I'm sure Jonah wanted a front row seat that perhaps judgment would finally come. Keep going. As Jonah sat in misery, as he sat pouting, we see that the Lord is back at work. In our text, we see that he graciously appointed a plant to grow, to come over, Jen- uh, over Jonah, to provide him some shade, to save Jonah from some discomfort that he was having as he sat in the tent. And this word appointed is actually one we see come up in Jonah 1, where the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. So now the Lord is appointing a plant to provide shade for Jonah. And as Jonah felt some of the cool of the shade, we see that some of his bitterness actually did subside for a little bit. And our text tells us that he became exceedingly glad because of the plant, with the word exceedingly also coming up in verse 1 of our text today. I think this here is just to help us see just how fickle Jonah is in this book. I mean, he's all over the board in this little book. He's so up, he's so down. Verse 6, in the roller coaster ride that is Jonah, as I mentioned, he's exceedingly happy because of shade. But we see that that happiness did not last very long. It was a very shallow happiness. As we read in verse 7, that as dawn came the next day, the sovereign Lord once again made an appointment. And this time he appointed a worm to attack the plant that was giving Jonah shade. And as the worm attacked the plant, the worm was able to gain victory over it because we see that the plant withered, taking with it the shade of comfort, or the uh, the comfort of shade, which you see in verse 8, would have been something nice for Jonah to have in this scene because we see that as sun rose the next day, God continued to make appointments as he appointed a scorching east wind to rise up and blew heat of the sun right at Jonah. Whereas the heat of the sun started to beat down on Jonah and uh, on his head, we see that he was becoming faint. And by the way, I think this here, I think this is once again, see like the hound of heaven chasing, disciplining Jonah, who once again was trying to leave the Lord's presence. So in the text, as Jonah was being beat down by the scorching heat, we see in a text that once again, he prayed that he might die. Saying once again, it is better for me to die than to live. However, as a hound of heaven was chasing Jonah, we see in verse 9, he wasn't chasing Jonah to be cruel towards him, but once again, he's chasing Jonah to reach Jonah, to teach Jonah. When in the text, we see the Lord give Jonah a teaching lesson. The Lord says to Jonah, 
Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? Which is similar language again to the question God already asked Jonah in verse 4 of our passage. I think this here, this is more of God being gracious towards Jonah. He's being so patient with his pouting prophet. Jonah, is this really what you want for today? Being sad, angry, frustrated over the death of this plant? To which Jonah responds back, which I'm sure he does with a really snippy tone. Yes. Yes, I do. I do well to be angry. In fact, I do so well to be angry that the dying of this plant has made me angry enough to die. This plant dying is just further indication, God, that you have no clue what you're doing. You can screw this up. And for Jonah here, this is like a first-class pity party that he's throwing himself. This is Jonah acting like a toddler who did not get his or her way. He's throwing a massive temper tantrum. But as Jonah was throwing his big, dramatic, massive temper tantrum, his big pity party, once again, we see the Lord didn't lose his cool. The Lord is still patient, very patient with his pouting prophet. More mercy, more kindness, more grace. As we've seen in the text, he does by extending his teaching lesson. Clearly, Jonah's not listening, not learning here. So in verses 10 and 11, we see the Lord continue to come to him. Jonah, do you see what you're doing here? Do you see the irony? Do you see the hypocrisy? What's taking place in you right now? You are pitying the plant. You know, the very plant that you did nothing to labor for, the very plant you did nothing to make grow, you know, the plant that I appointed over you, that came into being that night, the very one that I appointed to perish in a night, that's what you're throwing this dramatic pity party over. Do you really think that you're in the right to do this, Jonah? Do you really suggest, like, I'm the one who's in the wrong? For showing such pity, mercy, kindness, grace, compassion to Nineveh? You know, the great city of Nineveh, which our text tells us, had over 120,000 people who live in it. That great city that was so far off course, our text tells us they didn't even know what their right hand from the left hand was doing. The Lord to Jonah. Let's just take a step back and think about what's happening right now. Is this really what you want? Do you see any type of hypocrisy here? Are you really indicating that I'm the wrong for showing pity to those people by pouring compassion on them? Jonah, did you forget all the times I've done that very thing for you? Do you feel that entitled for my grace, my compassion, my mercy, my kindness? Are you suggesting that somehow maybe you earned all of that? Jonah, have you forgotten how patient I've been with you? That you think I'm wrong for now showing patience, compassion towards others? Now, this is the Lord clearly pointing Jonah just how prideful he is in this passage. Finally, our text ends, the study ends this morning by the Lord showing Jonah how irrational he was being, simply asking him, and Jonah, if I was wrong, I was showing pity to them, what about all the cattle? If you're so tore up about this plant, 
Like, shouldn't you be happy at least like the cows were spared from disaster? And that's by this last section here, this is how the Lord kind of ends this book. You know, kind of abrupt end to the book. But in it, it's the Lord calling out Jonah, putting Jonah on trial. In doing so, the Lord is clearly displaying the difference between his good, kind heart and Jonah's fickle, hypocritical, judgmental heart. Which, if we're honest, probably far too often we want to admit, looks a lot like our own heart. Where I'm sure we might see some of the hypocrisy in Jonah in ourselves. Where we, you know, we, who are Christians, who believe in Jesus Christ, who receive such mercy, kindness, grace from God, yet far too often just want to stand in judgment of others. Where we can even be angry if others receive any type of mercy, kindness, and grace. Which is, leads how I want to kind of end our time here in this short little sermon series to Jonah. And how I want to do this, I want to take a little bit more time just to think about just hypocrisy. Now, when it comes to hypocrisy, we know we can be hypocrites in so many different ways, so many different levels. But for this time here, I just want to talk about hypocrisy as it relates to this text. And this is the hypocrisy of Jonah, who was more than willing to receive mercy, kindness, and grace from the Lord, yet didn't want others to receive that same treatment. And so how I want to close this, first I want to give us just a few warnings of this type of hypocrisy. Warnings of maybe some false hopes that we can have. False hopes that might tempt us to either to be blind, or to maybe overlook, or maybe to justify hypocrisy in our own hearts. Then after doing that, I just want to give us the one true hope, the only hope that we have, including the hope that it comes to hypocrisy. And then from there, I just have a couple quick thoughts on how we might walk in that one true hope in ways that we're fighting against hypocrisy. But first, let me just give you the warnings. Warnings, as mentioned, they could be false hope to us. False hopes that maybe tempt us to be blind, overlook, or maybe justify hypocrisy uh, that we might see in our own hearts. So first, so first, right theology by itself does not eliminate hypocrisy. Now, obviously, we want right theology. Right theology is critical. Right theology, when rightly applied, is necessary in the fight against hypocrisy. However, if right theology is not rightly applied, it can actually give us a false hope. You know, the scripture tells us that even the demons believe. So in a sense, even demons have a right theology. But just simply having a right theology doesn't mean hypocrisy in our hearts is eliminated. At times, we can have right doctrine, right theology, yet be overflowing with hypocrisy. And there's plenty of examples I won't give you here from the scriptures, plenty of examples all throughout church history where people could communicate the right things, yet be overflowing with hypocrisy. And that, that actually is one of the warnings, I think, of Jonah. Jonah, he knew the right things about God. He had right theology. Jonah would have passed with flying colors any type of theological uh, exam given to him. And let's just kind of back up through the book. So in chapter 1, as Jonah fled from the presence of the Lord, he fled because he knew that the Lord was the one who is mighty to save, which obviously he didn't want to happen. But his theology was right there. He knew that God saves. Chapter 1, verse 9, as a storm raged, as the sailors in the ship started to ask Jonah who he was, where he is from, as he responded back to these questions, remember how Jonah shared his testimony? And as he shared his testimony, he had right theology. 
he was actually rightly declaring God for who he truly is. That he is Yahweh, the Lord of heaven and earth, the one who made the seas and the dry land. He was right. He was theologically correct. Chapter 2. In Jonah's great prayer of repentance and faith, Jonah had the right theology to turn to the Lord in distress, where he rightly understood it is the Lord who dwells in his holy temple. It is the Lord who is one who is able to bring us out of the pit. It is the Lord who alone is worthy of our thanksgiving and praise. Because it is the Lord, the Lord alone, who is able to give salvation. All of that, theologically correct. That's indeed what Scripture teaches. Chapter 3. Jonah gave a theologically correct sermon to Nineveh as he called them out and called them to the Lord. And he used that theologically correct sermon. The Lord used it to cut to the heart that led people, as mentioned earlier, great and small, the city turning to believe in the Lord. His theology was right. He gave a right, rightly divided truth sermon. Our text today, chapter 4, if you want to take your eyes back to verse 2. Jonah was theologically correct. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger. He was right. The Lord is abounding in steadfast love and relenting in disaster. That is exactly what the scriptures teach us about our God. In chapter 4, Jonah also was theologically correct. And that he understood that the Lord is the one who is over life and death as he turned to the Lord, asking him to take his life. You know, all throughout the book of Jonah, Jonah had some serious problems, but his theology wasn't one of them. He was theologically solid. So yes, friends, we should be striving to have right theology. It is so important, critically important. But just being able to communicate right theology is not enough. It also needs to be rightly applied. Because if not, what can quickly happen is that theology becomes a source of pride, a source of arrogance, hypocrisy. It can give us a false hope where we might start to beat our own chest while looking down at others. Second, having like a right, righteous understanding, even anger of sin, even that doesn't eliminate hypocrisy. Now, Scripture does tell us that we are to be angry with a righteous anger towards sin. Right? Be angry, but do not sin. So sin, it really should anger us. But we all know how easy it is for it to be angry and sin. Where in our anger, we're just always angry about like maybe like the speck in someone else's eye. We're having no anger about the hypocritical log in our own eye. You know, for Jonah, sure. I don't doubt it. At least at some points, he had righteous anger towards Nineveh. It seemed like he had the right spiritual discernment. He could see this is a city great in evil that had a past history of showing evil towards God's people in Israel. But in Jonah, that righteous anger, that seemed to be swallowed up by sinful, prideful anger. Where in his anger, not only did Jonah not want others to receive mercy, kindness, and grace from God, but his anger was actually exceeding anger at the Lord himself because of mercy, grace, kindness. You know, friends, we can't, if all we ever can see and talk about is like the sin of others, 
we're like always just like angry and bitter towards others around us, only able to discern their sin, that's miserable. And not only that, it might be an indication that we have to really examine our own hearts. It could be a real indication that we actually were angry at the Lord. Because we don't trust how he's at work in the world around us. Or maybe we're always angry because we're angry at God and we're actually sticking our finger in his face. Accusing him of screwing things up. We're in our anger. We actually have the audacity to think that we know better than him. Third little warning here. A successful ministry in itself doesn't eliminate hypocrisy. So even that, we can't hope in that. And so over the years, that's actually been one of the sober realities that continue to be seen in popular levels. We're seeing like over and over again, there's stories of people who seem to have like important, influential ministries. You know, they have this real following where people seem to be greatly benefited from their teaching. Only for in time, different levels of hypocrisy keep coming out. They've either stained or disqualified their ministry. And we know that's not just in popular levels, but even local levels as well. Where people who seem to be in so solid on the things of Christ, who are doing such great ministries, it seems like, only for information to come out later that point to almost a double life. Where they didn't come close to practicing what they preach. You know, in fact, even this week, I was with a good number of pastors for lunch. And I was just kind of talking, and I actually learned there that a few other pastors kind of in this general area just disqualify themselves. There's a hypocrisy. So friends, having like, you know, in quotes, successful ministry, it doesn't eliminate us from falling prey to hypocrisy. In fact, at times, it seems almost like the more success we have, whatever we might be doing, it can just lead to deeper levels of pride and hypocrisy where the ministry actually becomes about us, not about the Lord. And the thing about this for Jonah, he was a part of at least two known, incredible works of God. I mentioned earlier, 2 Kings. Jonah's ministry led to Israel turning back to the Lord in ways that they received some really sweet blessings from the Lord. Jonah 3. Jonah was used by the Lord to minister an incredible revival. One like has like no rival. Yeah, even as that revival is taking place, we see this hypocrisy in chapter 4, where Jonah was angry at the Lord for extending his work of salvation. Friends, as important it is to have right theology, right doctrine, have the right ability to discern sin, as good as it is to have desire to have impactful ministry towards others, in the end, those things can't be our hope. In the end, those things don't wash away our hypocrisy. There's only one hope. There's only one who can do that. This is actually a second thing I want to say here before we close, which is our hope. Friends, our hope, our hope is that the Lord is on a mission to save his people from their sins. And that really is the emphasis of this little book. It's not Jonah. It's the Lord. It's the Lord who is on mission. It's the Lord who is indeed gracious and merciful. The one who is slow to anger, who abounds in steadfast love, who does relent from disaster, which he does even towards hypocrites. Friends, that's our hope. Our hope is nothing in us. It's not even getting things right. 
Our hope is only in the Lord. Right? That's where our right theology, our right understanding of sin, that's where it's meant to lead us, to hope in Him. Any ministry we have should be bubbling out of that, that hope we have in the Lord, the one who is on a mission to save. Friends, that's where Jonah is leading us, to hope in the Lord, to hope in Him who is on a mission to save His people. Chapter 1, as you remember, the God on mission, he came to save pagan sailors. Sailors who, just as the storm first hit, were just praying to their own pagan gods. Yet the Lord came to them. He saved them. Chapter 3, as you remember, the Lord was on mission to come and save the great city of Nineveh that was known for wickedness. Right, throughout this book, the God on mission came to save and continue to save his disobedient prophet, his proud, hypocritical prophet, Jonah. Where over and over again in this little book, the Lord is so gracious, so merciful, so slow to anger, so abounding in steadfast love, relenting disaster over and over again. Friends, that's the hope of this book. That is the hope. That is our only hope that the Lord will be faithful to his promises, his promises to save a people to himself, to save even unfaithful people, people who have been captured by all different types of hypocrisy. That's our hope. And for us, we know, ultimately, this hope, this mission of God that he promises fulfilled is a mission that he fulfilled by coming to us through his eternal Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came and lived as one of us in every way, every way yet without hypocrisy. Where Jesus came on a mission to fulfill God's word, to put God's grace and mercy and steadfast love on display for all eternity, which Jesus Christ did by taking on the anger of God that burns over sin, which Jesus did on the cross, where Jesus died for all who by faith come to him, including you here today. So by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, all who trust in him, all who call upon his name, all who believe that Jesus died only to rise again, and eternal disaster that awaits sinners, it would be relented. Because through Jesus Christ, God forgives. He forgives even our greatest hypocrisy. Because in Jesus, we see that God himself is the great master of the parable that I read for you at the start. That through Jesus, he does have pity on his servants. That through Jesus, he does forgive our debts. Let's say again, may all of our theology of God, all of our understanding of sin, whatever ministry we might have, may it all be grounded in this hope. The hope of Jesus Christ, which is the only hope in this life. It is only him. That God and his mission came to us to show us mercy, grace, and kindness as he came for us in our salvation on Christmas. Which does lead how I quickly want to close out this sermon series. Friends, in light of this great mission of God found in Jesus Christ, I just have a few just practical thoughts on how we might fight against you know, this type of hypocrisy in our own hearts that we might see in Jonah in our text. They might put hypocrisy to death by nailing it to the cross. So just a few practical things. So first, 
Let me just encourage you to continue to rehearse the evidence of grace that you see in your life, including the evidence of grace that led you to believe the first time. So one of the things I was actually thinking about this week also was just the New Testament example of the Apostle Paul, where a few different times in New Testament letters wrote about his testimony. Remember those? Like how he was like labeled himself the chief of sinners, the persecutor of the church. Yet God was merciful and kind and gracious to Paul to open up his eyes to believe in Jesus. He just kept going back to that message of salvation when he first believed. Friends, for us, keep looking for, keep talking about the evidence of God's grace in your life, including continue to go back to the evidence of grace when you first believe. It helps us to remember how, God, how gracious God has been towards us with hopes it might lead us to be more gracious towards others. Second practical thing here, simply just to pray and ask the Lord to search your heart just to reveal hypocrisy. And wherever you see it, repent. Seek forgiveness, which really was the sermon that we had from chapter 2. Right? That's just the normal Christian life, living in repentance and faith. Just confess, churn from hypocrisy. Trust thee that indeed God is faithful and just to forgive us all of our sins. Third, also pray that the Lord would just grow you in this area of your life. Pray for yourself. Pray that God would grow your heart to be more like his heart. Pray for others. Particularly those maybe you're most judgmental towards. Pray that indeed God would be merciful and kind and gracious towards them. Fourth, practical thing. Fourth, just be very careful what comes out of your mouth. Okay, so Ephesians 4 tells this. It says, Let no corrupt talking come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as it fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And our conversations can't always have like negative spins. Where the only thing we ever talk about is like how mad we are or how bad everything is. If all we're planting is seeds in our hearts like that, over time we'll start to look more and more like Jonah. Rather, let your conversations be building up. Use gracious words. One more. Just set your heart to live on mission. That's the story of Jonah. God is a God on mission. We, his people, that way, are meant to be a people who live on mission. So let me encourage you to live on mission in ways you're actually getting to know the people around you. So like spend intentional time getting to know your neighbors, your coworkers, your classmates. Like actually take time to get to know them well enough to like hear their story, their struggle, their insecurities, their pain. Like who knows how that might soften your heart? And we do that first because that's God's good command for us. He tells us we are to be on mission, to seek and share the gospel with the world around us. But as we take time to get to know others, as we actually get to know others in real ways, friends, it does lead us to have more compassion in the way the Lord had compassion on Nineveh. As you and I, as we get to know others around us, what happens is we want for them what we have for ourselves. Mercy, 
kindness, and grace from God. You know, church, God has been so good to us. From sending us Jesus, from calling us to himself, for his continued to be so ever patient with us, or as individuals, or as a church as a whole, we have so many evidence of God's grace on us. May we not take any of those for granted. May we not feel entitled to any of that. But may the mercy and the kindness and the grace of, heart, of God, may those things just capture our hearts in such a way that's reflected in how we look to others who God has placed around us. Let's pray. Thank you for your grace. And oh Lord, please forgive us when we take your grace for granted or if we become angry or bitter towards others who might receive grace. And oh Lord, I do pray for our little church family here. Please bless our church family for your glory. Please let this place be a place that's overflowing with mercy and kindness and grace. I pray so in Jesus' name. Amen.